Good morning. So glad you guys are here. It's great. Um, I'm Joel. I'm the Connect Pastor, online campus. We're happy you're here. Later viewers, glad you're here. Man, yeah, the gathering's going to be great. You're, you're doing puzzles? Does that mean like you're going to do like thousand piece puzzles? How, how's that going to, I don't know how we're going to do that in time, but um, it's going to be fun. We're, we're really glad that's happening as well. Um, we're three weeks deep now into the Love Where You Live series. Um, we've talked about loving your neighbors. We've talked about loving where you work. And a lot of those two have focused on the first part of the love where you live. And today is called You Are Here. And so we're going to kind of focus a little bit more on the last part, the love where you live. I actually don't know if that makes any sense. But have you seen those like big directory-like signs uh, at malls and amusement parks that tell you where the Beast is or tell you where, you know, Macy's is? And, and the thing that's really helpful about all that is that it also has a little dot or an arrow or some red marker that tells you where you are in relation to all of that, right? You've seen these, yes? Okay, have you ever imagined, or maybe, maybe one exists somewhere where it's just a map, have you ever imagined how difficult it would be if it didn't tell you where you were in that? Like, what would you even do? What help would that actually be for you? Um, I've, I've been to Paris one time in my life, and um, this is uh, my obligatory picture of my wife and I in front of the Eiffel Tower. That was 10 years ago. And GPS and uh, turn-by-turn directions existed back then, Google Maps and stuff like that. I was just too cheap to pay for an international phone plan. And uh, so I took screenshots of all the, the maps and the streets and stuff that we would need to be uh, traversing. We landed on their Independence Day at like 7 in the morning. And we took uh, a train from Charles de Gaulle Airport to the right district of where our hostel was. And I got within like a half a mile of where the place was. I just couldn't find the, the, the street. And there was no one out. And I don't mean figuratively. I mean literally at 7 a.m. there was no one else on the streets. No one else to ask. And finally I turn a corner and I find a, a street sweeper. He's got like the city vest on. And I walk up to him and I ask him if he can help me find the name of the street. I did all that in English, and wouldn't you know it, this uh, French uh, street sweeper completely ignored me <laughs> and pretended like I had not just spoken to him, and that's when I confirmed that some of the stereotypes about French people towards tourists was, was probably accurate. But I'll tell you, man, that whole trip, I completely underestimated how incredibly difficult it would be to navigate without knowing where I was on the map. I, it was a huge mistake, and whatever money that I saved, it was just not worth it. And have you ever been lost? Have you ever struggled with knowing where you were? I'm not talking about just in an amusement park or in a foreign city. I mean, have you ever struggled with purpose? Have you ever asked yourself, what am I doing? Why am I here? I'm going to guess the answer for all of us is yes. But the thing is, we all have goals, like like, just about all of us have some sort of goal, like, for the, to accomplish for the day, something that we're trying to accomplish in the next couple of months, something we want to do in our career, right? You guys have goals, yeah? Okay. Um, we're going to play a fun little Family Feud-style uh, game of a Gallup poll just listed the top six types of goals that Americans have. So types of goals. Um, and we're going to do this half of the room versus this half of the room. All right. Da-da-da. Da-da-da. Can I see the board, please? Uh, top six answers are on the board of types of goals that Americans have. I'm going to start with this side. Raise your hand. Give me a type of goal. Yes. 
buy a house. Uh, so you're probably saving up for that. Maybe show me where financial goals are. You know, you would think that, but no, it's number two. Good job. All right, Liam. All right, that's this half of the room. This side of the room, I'm looking for the number one answer, the number one type of goals. Somebody has. I hear fitness a lot. Yeah, show me health or fitness goals. Is it number one? Yes! All right, save the day. All right, this side of the room. We, we really would like number three, and that could possibly put you over the edge here. Number three, give me a type of goal that Americans have. Edu education, retire. I'm going to put retirement and financial. Education, yes. Give me, is there any kind of personal development goals on our survey? Survey says, number three, you nailed it. All right, you guys have to get number four or else the game's over. You wipe the board, all right? Number four, these last two are kind of difficult. Show me. Family and marriage. All right, I'm going to put, you got to have number five for this side of the room. It's got to be number Oh, no, we still got four. Four or five. Show me relationship or social goals. <laughs> Again, it's not an X. I, I see it up here. It's there. <laughs> there you go. Good job. Number five. All right. I'm going to give you guys one last chance, even though we're going way over time on this game. No. What? Oh, you're right. That... Okay, well, hey, sir, hey, you guys are the judges back there. Okay, thank you very much. The last one, I don't know, can you get it? Retirement. Dude, who said religious? That's amazing. It is religious or spiritual goals. That's impressive. All right. All right, well, you guys did excellent. I don't even know who won, but I do know this. I know that we all have got goals. And I, I bet that most of us want for our goals is just to not be distracted. Like, just for people to get out of our way, right? Like, we just want to be able to do what we want to do and, and not have any interruptions. I, I just this past week finished the Couch to 5K app. Has anybody ever seen this before? It's like an eight-week walking to jogging program. And this is, this is like one of my screenshots from one of my last runs. I even got to do it over those eight weeks with some of my girls, and sometimes them walking slash running with me was more helpful, um, and sometimes it was very, uh, like, distracting. Um, but when, when uh, that's just a bunny, that's not my girls. My, um, when I was doing this eight-week program, do you want to guess how long it took me to do this, this eight-week program? I know you might think eight weeks, but no. I first... I first started trying the Couch to 5K app in, like, 2018, <laughs> okay? There is plenty of lazy months in there, and, uh, but one of the biggest distractions, the diversions, was when I tore my knee playing soccer in 2021. That sent me back, like, a whole 18 months. And then this app actually even tracks, um, like, I can go back and I see when I ran or walked my first, my first walk for week one, day one. It was April 22nd, 2022. So at the very last iteration, it still took me a whole year to finish this eight-week run program. I'm telling you all this because it's difficult. It's difficult to be distracted and frustrating and demoralizing to get off track, you know. Um, maybe, maybe there's lots of reasons for that. But I see two big purpose pitfalls when it comes to the things that we're trying to accomplish in this life. The first one is that we get interrupted. 
or that it's just a hard, we have a hard time focusing. You know, maybe you have some big life-altering event. Maybe you just lose willpower. I see this a lot. There are just too many competing goals. You have that, right? Like, like I've got too many top goals, and I can't accomplish all of them. But the other big purpose pitfall that I see is just that we have the wrong goals. You know, like, like we might um, get halfway there and be like, eh, this really isn't for me. Or maybe you accomplish the goal that you set out for. Maybe you, maybe you reach some point in your career and you're like, huh, is this it? Like, I thought I was meant for something more. And I, I thought this would, this would mean more. I thought this would feel better. And if, if you've ever struggled with purpose, then I have got a story for you today. It, it's, it's the book of Esther. And you may know some of this. You may not know any of it at all. But in the Old Testament, there is a whole book devoted to this Jewish girl um, who uh, we find out is orphaned. And she's taken in by a distant cousin uncle-like figure named Mordecai. And, uh, but being orphaned isn't Esther's only issue. She's also born uh, with, as a Jew in a country that is just not friendly towards Jews, in, in a foreign country. Um, and so it, it's, it's, uh, it's an issue. She, she lives in the empire of Persia, which was the biggest in the world at the time. And the story of Esther begins by finding out that the king of Persia, Xerxes, is throwing a party. And by the way, all this stuff is like totally factual. You can check Xerxes and Mordecai, even in extra-biblical sources like outside the Bible. You can find these names are historical, they're accurate. And you combine that with what I uh, feel like I know about God and what I know about his word, and like I believe every word of this happened the way that it says it did. But King Xerxes is having a party. And him and his officials are having some, like, drunken revelry. And a couple of days in, he calls his queen, a girl, uh, a queen by the name Queen Vashti. And she says, nah, not doing it. Don't know why. Um, maybe she's afraid she's going to be humiliated or abused or just something uncomfortable. And she refuses to go. She refuses the king. And you can imagine, that, that doesn't fly real well. So Xerxes just deposes her. And uh, he's, he, he decides he's going to have a new queen, because he's a king, he can do that. And uh, he holds a beauty pageant to find the next queen. There is a lot of cringe in the story of Esther, especially to a 2023 ear. But Esther was beautiful, and, uh, and she enters the pageant, and she goes through all the beauty treatment regiments and treatments, and finally... When she's presented and she meets Xerxes, he's smitten. It says that the king was attracted to Esther more than any of the other women, and she won his favor and approval more than any of the other virgins. So he set a royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. And the king gave a great banquet, Esther's banquet, for all his nobles and officials. And they lived happily ever after. Amen. Okay, wait, you, you cut me off. That's, we're not doing that? Because it's not over? In fact, you haven't even met the bad guy yet. The bad guy has got the most, not the most, but one of the obvious bad guy names. His name is Haman. You know, right, like if I told you I'm going to tell you a story about Esther and Mordecai and Haman and Xerxes, you could tell me which one of those was the bad guy, couldn't you? I'm sorry for anybody named Haman out there. Uh, you're not a bad guy. It's just, you know, the story. 
And Haman actually has a problem with Mordecai, the uncle, distant cousin of Esther. He has a problem with Mordecai because Haman's the highest ranking official in the capital city of Susa here in, in the Persian Empire. And Haman walks through the streets and everyone kneels down and bows down to Haman except for Mordecai. That really, mm, that really irks Haman. That mixed with uh, uh, probably uh, societal anti-Semitism and you get this whole situation where Haman goes to Xerxes and says this. There's a certain people dispersed among the peoples and the provinces of your kingdom who keep themselves separate. Their customs are different from those of other people, and they do not obey the king's laws. It is not in the king's best interest to tolerate them. If it pleases the king, let a decree be issued to destroy them. And I will give 10,000 talents of silver to the king's administrators for the royal treasury. So the king takes off his signet ring and gives it to Haman and says, you know, let it be done. You know, do what you want with these people. Haman has recommended that all the Jews be exterminated throughout the, I mean, just terrible genocide. And I never even realized how, how big of an area uh, Persian was here about 500 years before Christ. Um, but a date is chosen for this destruction of the Jews. It's a big problem. And in the 12th year of King Xerxes, in the first month, the month of Nisan, the poor, that is a lot. Think ancient dice roll. It, it was cast in the presence of Haman to select a day and a month, and Lot fell on the 12th month, the month of Adar. So this, this lot or this dice, the poor, it'll become slightly significant here later on in the story, but this is a big issue for the Jews living all throughout Persia, but they did have a couple of things on their side, right? They had the queen, who was a Jew, even though she couldn't let the king know that she was Jewish, she, uh, she was still there, and she had that, you know, at least um, official-sounding title. But remember what we already found out in the story, that if the queen exercises her own will, like, bad things can happen. So that's really probably not a great route. It's not something to hang your hopes on. Something else that you don't know about Mordecai is that while Esther was going through all these beauty treatments, um, Mordecai's hanging out around the palace, and he overhears some guards plotting an assassination on King Xerxes. And so he tells Esther, who then lets the king know and gives Mordecai credit, and Xerxes finds out the plot and takes care of it, and his life is saved. But Mordecai is never recognized for his role in all of it, so that's really not a promising start either. I mean, we're talking like Hail Mary time here, people. Like, this is a big problem. Um, the, the, the provinces of Persia stretched from uh, northern Africa and Ethiopia in the, in the west to all the way to the subcontinent of India. Here's a map of it. The subcontinent of India in the east. I mean, we're talking like bigger than the Roman Empire at points. And just imagine if uh, the Jewish race was wiped from the planet, from, from those, those territories. It would, be, it would be a massive genocide. And Esther hasn't heard this problem yet. She finds out that Mordecai is weeping in the streets, so she sends, she sends a, a messenger, Hatak, and, uh, and has him find out. And Mordecai has this to say. He told her the whole story, told him the whole story, including the exact amount of money that Haman had promised to pay the royal treasury for the destruction of the Jews. And Mordecai gave Hatak a copy 
of the decree issued in Susa that called for the death of all the Jews. And he asked Hattach to show it to Esther and to explain it to her. He also asked Hattach to direct her to go to the king and beg for mercy and to plead for her people. And I get the impression that Esther's caught off guard uh, by, like, she didn't see this coming. And uh, the gravity of the situation has, like, really, you know, caught her one foot in. And she, she, uh, she feels overwhelmed. And she says, you know, it's not that I won't, it's that I can't. Um, you don't understand, the king has one rule. If anybody comes into his presence uh, without being summoned, it's instant death. And uh, Mordecai doesn't accept that response. And uh, he tells her, he tells her, this is, this is where the story starts to turn. He tells her, if you keep quiet at a time like this, deliverance and relief for the Jews will arise from some other place. It's interesting, Esther is the only, one of the only few books in the Bible that doesn't um, talk about God explicitly, but his fingerprints are all over it. Like, where is this deliverance from the Jews going to come? Like, why is Mordecai so sure? He says, Deliverance and relief for the Jews will arise, but you and your relatives will die. Who knows, Esther, that if perhaps you were orchestrated, you were made to be queen for just such a time as this. I love it. It's like Esther has completely regained her composure. Now she's the one issuing orders. And she, uh, she tells Mordecai, gather up all the people you can, fast and pray for three days. I'm going to get my attendants and we're going to do the same thing. And then I'm going to execute my plan. And her plan was to go to Xerxes. And maybe he's stunned. Maybe he's pleasantly surprised. Um, but his queen that he had just made queen shows up without warning. And he does extend his royal scepter and spares her life. And she tells him, I, I don't want to give you my request right now. Let me throw a banquet for you. In fact, invite Haman as an honored guest to this banquet, and there I will tell you my request. And so it's done. And Haman, not knowing Esther's plot or who she was or any of this stuff, feels pretty good about himself. Because not only has he reached as the highest-ranking official in all of Persia, but now the queen herself is, is requesting him to be an honored guest <laughs> at his feast. At this feast, and so he goes home, and he's telling his family, you know, just bragging about all the great things that's happening to him. But he's still, he's still irked by that Mordecai guy. He just passed him in the street, and again, he wouldn't bow down to him. And some of his friends and family suggest, hey, why don't you make this giant pole and sharpen it at the end, and then you can, when the day comes for the destruction of all the Jews, you can, you can impale him on that pole. Haman thinks, yeah, that's that's a good plan, and he starts making the pole. But now this next part's good, because even as, as uh, Haman's plotting the destruction of Mordecai and all the Jews, you can see God at work, because the night before Esther's second banquet, where she's going to hold, tell the king her actual request, he can't sleep. And so he has the royal attendant read him the records of the king, basically a royal diary of his reign. And sure enough, during that night, the attendant comes to the part where the story of the king's assassination attempt comes up, and he, and he talks about Mordecai, and the king stops him. He's like, was anything done for that Mordecai guy? I mean, that, that, that was a pretty big deal. 
And so the next morning, he's still pondering this. When he sees Haman out in the courtyard, he tells Haman, hey, come here. I got a question for you. And he asks Haman this big question. He says, what should I do to honor a man who truly pleases me? And of course, Haman is thinking, ah, he's talking about me. So Haman gives him this answer, like, I think you should put him up on a, on a horse and wrap him in royal robes and have the highest ranking official, like, walk him around the city streets so people can pay him homage. And the king says, you know what? That sounds like a good plan. Why don't you grab the reins of that horse? I'm going to put Mordecai <laughs> up on top of it and wrap him in my royal robes. And that happens. And here's a little children's illustration. If this was the end of the book of Esther, you know, it'd be kind of funny and ironic. And that's, that's good stuff. But this isn't a children's story. It's not rated PG-13, I promise. Um, and it's, it's um, not a happy ending for Haman, for sure. Because as soon as he's done with this humiliation, I bet a part of Esther's story that you've never seen before, and you've never looked through the lens of purpose like this before, but see what happens to Haman as his friends first have suggested, well, why don't you make a pole and impale Mordecai on it? Then, after this happens, they change their tune. And in Esther 6, they say, since uh, Mordecai, this man who has humiliated you, um, he's of Jewish birth, you'll never succeed against him. Uh, it will be fatal to continue opposing him. These, these Persians, uh, these Gentiles, even they recognize the divine intervention that's taking place, and they warn their friend Haman about continuing to oppose him. Well, what's the problem with Mordecai and his Jewish birth? I'll tell you what, what the problem is. The problem is the God that's behind that. And before Haman even has a chance to answer them or anything like that, he's off to the banquet that Esther's thrown, and she's going to tell the king her request. And that's where she tells him who she is, who her people are. And she pleads that he have mercy on her and her people. And of course, the king is pleased with her, and for whatever reason, the king like totally changes course on what he had already allowed to be decreed, and he's angry. He's mad that this has happened, so much so he has to go out of the room to get air. And Haman, realizing the danger, instead of chasing after the king to beg him for mercy, goes to Esther. And he, he is pleading, and I imagine just like pawing at her to like have mercy on him. And the king walks back in, he's like, what is happening? Are you going to assault the queen here in my presence? And some guard's like, you know, Haman has been erecting this pole to impale Mordecai on. Maybe he should just be thrown on top of it. And uh, earmuffs for all the younger people. Um, that's what happens. Yeah, this is not a story about forgiveness and grace. This is a story about the power of Mordecai and Esther's God. And there's still a huge issue, though, because even though that little tiff between Mordecai and Haman has come out the way that us readers, you know, wanted to come out, decree of the king has already been sent out and uh, all the people in Persia have been turned against uh, the Jews and they, the Jews aren't allowed to assemble or defend themselves. The Jews' property can be looted just at the, at the whim of anybody um, as soon as this day comes. But the king decides to make Mordecai his next highest top official and, and tells Mordecai, you know, issue another command, issue another decree to counter the first. And so Mordecai writes it up and he sends it out from India to Ethiopia, all the decrees, the new decree is read, and the Jews rejoice. Now, instead of being opposed by the government, the Jews are supported by the, 
it, and you can just tell there's been a huge mood shift throughout the entire empire, so much so that we read that people converted to Judaism because they could see the writing on the wall. And when there were battles and, and fights, the Jews became, uh, came out victorious, so much so that now this, this time, this, this moment that was chosen for their destruction, is, there's a celebration called Purim, um, off the name of the dice that were used to, to roll their, the date of their destruction. Now the Jews celebrate what God did for them in saving them during the Persian Empire. I can't get over that phrase that Mordecai used for such a time as this and how that applies to you and me because make no mistake about it like Esther is no saint in this story she did plenty of non-Jewish things you probably don't have to stretch your imagination too much to figure out what you have to do to get into the king's harem she you know she definitely didn't eat a Jewish diet Um, she had to hide who she was and and I'm just pointing all that out not to smear her character But to point out that you and me aren't probably exactly where we want ourselves to be. You probably aren't exactly where you dreamt that you would be at this stage of life. Maybe maybe you aren't the person that you hoped you would be all well-rounded and and not angry and and loving and, and have relationships mended. I bet that all of those areas of your life are not exactly where you want them to be. I just want you to see... Through, through Esther, that that doesn't matter. That, that you don't have to be perfect. Because what you really need to know is that no matter what the circumstances, no matter how life's role has gone for you, just remember that you are here. You are here right now, and you are His. And those are the key cornerstones to figuring out your purpose. Ephesians 5 talks a lot about this live, loving where you live and, and living um, like you're on purpose. And three of those verses say this. Be careful how you live. Don't live like fools, but like those who are wise. And make the most of every opportunity, no matter what's going on around you, no matter where you want it to be, make the most of every opportunity of where you are. And it says... Don't act thoughtlessly, but understand what the Lord wants you to do. There's just so much in this world that you can dedicate yourself to. There's so many things that you can be good at. There's so many careers. There's so many pathways. There's so much you can do with your children. But above all, figure out what God wants you to do. There's a documentary on Netflix called Pepsi, Where's My Jet? And in the Cold Wars during the 90s, Pepsi ran these commercials where it looked like, because there wasn't any fine print, you could buy a Harrier fighter jet with Pepsi points. And this, this young guy um, takes it seriously, finds a way to acquire the points, and then tries to get Pepsi to, to pay up for the Harrier jet. And the documentary is about the legal battle that ensues then all after that. But what really caught me during the documentary was the, the, uh, the ad executive who had gotten to the top of his field. I mean, he was employed by Pepsi during um, some of the most, um, you know, important times of, of their advertising career. And he'd done great things. He'd worked hard. 
He, like I said, he'd made it to like the top of what he can do, and yet, if you Google his name now, which I've already forgotten, if you Google his name, the only thing that will pop up on Wikipedia is about this Harrier jet scandal. And it just reminded me like how fickle our life's work can be. And, and something we've really got to keep in mind is it's not that what we do isn't important. It's that only the things of God are eternal. Amen? We need to figure out what God has for us to do. And to do that, we need to find our purpose. I think something that will really help you out is just to open up your eyes. Make sure your eyes and your heart are open to what God has for you. Because then, and only then, do you have, get a sense of what God's doing that you can make a bold step like what Esther did. And, and make no mistake about it, it will take bold steps to follow where God has called you. I was just talking with somebody on Wednesday about their small group, and they were telling me this, this little story about how they were disappointed in themselves because um, they had felt the prompting of the Holy Spirit and hadn't obeyed him yet. And I was like, well, how do you know it was the Holy Spirit? They're like, well... I, I, wanted, I got the idea that I needed to invite this neighbor friend to church. And I was like, well, okay. Like, yeah, well, I don't really know them that well. And honestly, they, she was being real honest with me. She's like, I don't talk to people about church that often. <laughs> She's like, and so it, it was a very not normal thing for me to have this thought about somebody like that. So I, I accepted that. And she's like, yeah. Well, and before I had a chance to invite them, um, I ran into him in the lobby of the church just last week. I'll tell you, man, God is going to do what he's going to do. But he also graciously is inviting and offering you and I to be a part of those great things. How amazing is that? But we need to get out of our own way and stop thinking that our power, that our position, that our abilities are what is going to make God succeed. That's not the case. What is so difficult about the story of Esther is just how good her excuses could have been. Because I hear the rationale behind them, and I'm like, yeah, yeah, I've said that. I've thought that before. Think about some of the things she could have argued. She could have said, I'm not significant. I'm replaceable, remember? Vashti was gone just like that. I, I can't do this. This isn't, this isn't me. I don't have the power. She could say, this is not safe. You know, uh, God would not ask me to do something that wasn't safe, would he? Or maybe she might have thought, even, even if I don't die, the king's already sent out the decree. So what good is it going to be for me to stick my neck out and give up my position? Like, it, the, you know, the die is already cast. Not, not imagining what God could possibly do. Or she might have just been like, no, nah, thanks. I'm good. I've got it fine. You don't understand. I have been orphaned. I've been a foreigner. And I am finally in a position where I'm not running for my life. And I'm not going to mess that up. God owes me this. So I'm just going to play it cool. And I find all that really chilling because of how simple it is not to follow God. 
how wide that path is that leads to destruction, right? And so if you're thinking about your own life's purpose and and trying to think about the story of Esther, I want you to just finally ask yourself three questions here with me. Think about this. Do you think that Esther, in her early years, imagined what her life was building, building towards? Do you think she's, she saw her lowly situation and said, yeah, God's, God's going to use me to do great things? Probably not. Do you think that she felt especially holy and qualified, like, mm, if God's going to use anybody, he's going to use me? No, I, I bet that was not her. I bet it's not you either. And the last one is, do you think that Esther was confident in every single move that she made? Or do you think that it took a great amount of faith and courage to make those steps? Yeah, you know it. So think about where you are and realize that God is wanting to work with you right where you are and not where you wish that you were. And not even where you're going to be two days from now, because you are here. Remember that Jonah was in the belly of a great fish when he finally turned around. And, and Daniel was like Esther. He was a foreigner um, hauled off into exile. And, and he wasn't even allowed to pray to his God the way that he wanted it for fear that he might be thrown into a lion's den. And Peter, the guy who's now enshrined in a a giant cathedral in in the center of Rome, he was a simple fisherman when God called him. Great King David, he wasn't so great growing up. He was ninth in line in his family, had the smelliest job. He wasn't even going to be anywhere near control of his own family's inheritance, much less over top of God's entire people. What you need to remember is that it does not matter where it looks like you are. What matters is who you are following when you're there. And who you're following tells you that you are the light of the world. That a a city on a hill cannot be hidden. That no one lights a lamp and puts it under a basket. Instead, a lamp, it's placed on a stand where it gives light to everyone in the house. So in the same way, let your light shine before men so they may see your good deeds and that they might praise your heavenly Father. That's what you're here for. You are here. You are his. So love where you live. And pray with me, God, you are God over all times and all places, and you want to work through imperfect people. It brings you even more glory that you can do things that are not expected. So God, I pray for the men and women here. We pray for our country, pray for our our city and our state. And God, we want to see you do amazing things. We want it to begin with us and with our, our, our daily time with you, God, that that again, whatever great things you might bring about, whatever bold steps we might take, that again, that you would get credit for that and that we would get to be a part of the great things that you do. So we thank you for the greatest thing that you've done by sending your son and forgiving us and giving us all kinds of hope 
for all of our future. And it's in his name that we pray.